All right, welcome everybody to the November CNS Journal Club podcast. My name is Hayden Hoffman. I'm a neurosurgery resident at SUNY Upstate, and I'll be moderating this episode. Today, we will be discussing an article published in Neurosurgery titled Venous Sinus Stenting for Low-Pressure Gradient Stenosis in Idiopathic Intracranial Hypertension. Um, I found this to be a, a very interesting, thought-provoking article that um, challenges a, a widely utilized exclusion criteria for venous sinus stenting in, in patients with idiopathic intracranial hypertension, and I'm looking forward to discussing it. Uh, with us today is the author of the study, Dr. Chen. Could you please introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. This is uh, uh... Rock Chen from UT, uh, University of Texas in Houston. Um, um, I'm the one the, uh, being registered doing this uh, study. Thank you. And um, we're also joined by our guest faculty, uh, Dr. Walid Brinjikshi, uh, who has published extensively on venous sinus stenting. I'm looking forward to hearing his take. Uh, could you please introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, my name is uh, Walid Brinjikji. I am an interventional neuroradiologist practicing at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, uh, part of both uh, the radiology and neurosurgery departments here. Great. And we're also joined by Dr. Huang. Could you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Dr. Kimberly Huang, and I am from Emory University over here in Atlanta. Georgia. I'm the CNS podcast um, co-chair and very excited to talk with our guest today um, on an article. And my uh, practice is actually quite different. I'm actually a tumor person. So um, Dr. Hoffman and I can learn and the audience can learn a lot from our guest today. Excellent. Well, thank you all for joining us. Um, Dr. Chen, I, I really enjoyed reading your article um, because it really seems like you're expanding the inclusion criteria for uh, venous sinus stenting, which, um, you know, from everything I've read has been shown to be very highly effective and safe for um, a condition that can really be quite difficult to treat effectively. I think as neurosurgeons, we're well acquainted to the limitations of shunting with this patient population and think venous sinus stenting is an exciting alternative. Um, could you give us a, a brief summary of, of the paper and, and um, what led you to perform the study? Yeah, um, the, uh, as you have mentioned that the medically uh, refractory um, idiopathic intracranial hypertension has been frequently treated with venous sinus uh, stenting uh, at the stenotic, venous sinus stenotic portion with a high success rate over the last probably 10 years. Um, patient selection has been driven almost exclusively by identifying superphysiological um, venous sinus pressure besides the neurological presentation. And the problem is that there had never been a single point that identified the true lowest pressure gradient uh, would determine patients beneficial. As of this point, um, the vast majority of uh, pressure gradient uh, either is arbitrarily set or theologically, uh, we believe it's meaningful. So uh, our study is in, 
intend to explore the the probability of uh, the uh, the lowest pressure uh, pressure gradient Venus pressure gradient will benefit from Venus sun extending. Um, we use our single center perspective maintained the, the registry of a patient with intracranial hypertension, uh, idiopathic intracranial hypertension, uh, and uh, uh, including venous sinus stenting um, as the uh, population of a study, cohort of study. We divide patients um, with the pressure gradient um, in, into three groups. The lowest pressure group uh, determined is less equal or less than four millimeter mercury. And the second group is a five to eight, and then higher than eight millimeter mercury, which is the most frequently used, the lowest cutoff for the patient potentially benefit from treatment. And we're looking to the, the, the outcome measure based on one, obviously, clinical improvement, uh, simple improvement, but mostly uh, based on the rigid clinical object, objective outcome measure, which is our um, the neurothermology evaluation, including optical coherence uh, um, tomography, which is so-called OCT, uh, visual field exam, acuity exam, uh, and obviously resolution of papillary edema. Uh, among 53 patients uh, in three uh, of three groups together, uh, the average, uh, the clinical uh, characteristic are very much similar average age 32, and then the BMI is about 36. Uh, the baseline characteristics is the same. We're looking into the outcome in, in terms of a lumbar puncture uh, opening pressure at six months uh, across board three group, turned a significant reduction back to the normal range. And the optic, the neuroophthalmological exam, including capillary edema evaluation, uh, OCT, um, they all end up um, uh, uh, similar in terms of outcome. Uh, uh, the, in absolute evaluation, you appear in the lowest pressure group, actually um, resolution rate of uh, um, the papillary edema um, is 100% compared to the rest of it. Um, and uh, this uh, exam also uh, shows on six weeks uh, exam as well. So in conclusion, we believe that the um, patient with intracranial hypertension, the, with the lower venous sinus pressure gradient um, seems also benefit uh, equally with the venous sinus stenting at the uh, stenotic portion as good as a high um, pressure gradient. Uh, that's what we see at this point. Great, um, thank you for, for that summary. Um, I'd like to open the, the floor to questions, and uh, Dr. Benjikchi, I'd love to hear your take on the study and any questions you might have. You know, I mean, I, I thought uh, that the study was was uh, very interesting uh, because it goes against the convention of kind of uh, what I've learned in my training and in how I practice, and I, I love uh, things that challenge our, our conventions. Um, you know, one question that I had for, for Dr. Chen is what are the, like, when you look at those patients that had a small gradient, you know, less than four, um, you know, how severe of papilledema are we talking about? How severe was the IIH 
um, in, in these patients compared to those that have the really high gradients. And I'm just saying that based off my experience, you know, the patients that have the grade four or five papilledema, you measure the gradient. I mean, it's like 30, 40, 50, Absolutely. Uh, you know, but then like grade one papilledema, a little bit of headache, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's like seven or eight. Uh, so yeah, if you could comment on that, I would, I would love to hear. I think that and when we look at this, the headache and uh, um, headache seems is one of the um, most difficult puzzle box in the sense that the presentation seems to oftentimes not really directly correlate to the pressure gradient. That's my sense. Um, definitely in the those patients with extremely high BMI as well as patients that have feminine cases come in with uh, vision near loss in in the crescendo uh, deteriorate course, those patients, the venous sinus pressure gradient as well as the lumbar puncture pressure tend to be exceedingly high, like we described the go beyond, easily go beyond 20 million mercury in venous sinus pressure. However, on the for the vast majority of patients with intracranial hypertension, we encounter in daily basis more often a similar runs often around uh, it really is run between five, six, seven, eight to teenish. That's more common. That part we really didn't see major differences. And papilledema also uh, it's not exactly consistent with what we're seeing in the venous sinus pressure measurement. Um, and uh, uh, at the same time, even more so, that doesn't necessarily always consist with the narrowing, anatomical narrowing in the 2D angiography study as well. Very interesting. And, and then uh, just a quick, you know, because so basically what I'm getting from this is that maybe, I mean, at least in, in some, a lot of these patients with a smaller gradient, it's the headache that's driving the treatment. Is, is that correct? No, actually, oh, yeah. you know, it, in fact, this was started was uh, was because of these patients. And for, for quite long period of time, we never commit for that. We changed our uh, algorithm over the few years of time. At the beginning, we always set our lowest margin of the treatment criteria as a five millimeter mercury gradient, meaning that five or below, we virtually exclude this patient from stenting. But as time when we realized that these patients remain to have a papillary edema, obviously those patients went for, uh, for the BP shunt, but we realized that these patients uh, at five, four, three, they have every part of a clinical evaluation, objective evidence. We evaluate this patient not because of their headache. Typically, these patients refer from neuroophthalmologists. And uh, after those rigid criteria being suggest that patient has a papillary edema, has OCT changes, then we perform LP first. If lumbar puncture pressure consists with evidence of a papillary edema and the visual change or visual field change, then we will proceed for six angiogram and then determine whether they have an anatomical narrowing. And then from there, the last piece of puzzle is the pressure gradient. So without those pre uh, criterias, um, the gradient measurement to us means nothing. Okay. Great. And, and then another question, what you said that all patients, you know, like, you know, most patients had improvement in headache. Uh, what did you use to, you know, 
comment to to measure you know headache severity do you use any scales you just kind of just get a gestalt from the the clinical notes and in the interview so we have developed this uh, uh questionnaire uh over over the years of time every single patient from day one uh, uh visit coming to our office or to the patient coming to the hospital emergently uh, this will receive a questionnaire and to check the headache, the level, which is scale from, you know, one to 10. But it's never really, I can't say those are always uh, meaningful, but it is, uh, on the other hand, in a certain sense, it is a scale um, for that presentation. And at the same time, also, whether they were on any medications for the headache, so throughout the time. So that also is additional. Um, and how long has been seeing neurologists? Uh, for the headache, all those included. Great. Very interesting. Uh, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, Dr. Virginji. Sorry, Dr. No, no, it's okay. And no, no, you, yeah, go ahead. Hopefully, Christy can just cut that part out. <laughs> so my understanding, um, and you know, remember, um, I'm going to try to bring this back out for our, our general audience to um, not just our vascular folks. So, um, you know, for stenting for IIH, IIH, it's still across centers. And I hope you guys will both um, will all agree with me that it's um, evolving in its indications and patient selection and it's heterogeneously adopted. I think um, not all centers, I would say, are big um, adopters of it. And so, you know, for the wider audience, um, I was wondering if maybe both of you could comment um, to the group, uh, what's your institutional algorithm and indications for selecting IH patients for um, you know, sinus stenting as opposed to more classic interventions like nerve sheath fenestration, shunting, weight loss, all the other options that exist for these patients um, and how you sort of you know, talk about that to other institutions maybe that haven't adopted as quickly as you guys have. Um. Uh, should I go first? I'll, I'll go first. Um, so it, I think you bring up one of a very critical question and really important, I think, ultimately. Um, the two, several things for us in terms of going through algorithm. I think I agree that there are heterogeneous uh, um, different criteria, but for us in our shop, um, we're going to the following several algorithms. One is we start with patient presentation, patient present with a headache and the visual ambiguity. And these patients, number one, have to have the symptoms and the particular have been presented with the visual symptoms. And these patients then typically will be evaluated by neuroophthalmologists. Um, that include um, the standard um, uh, battery, including the typical fundi exam, the OCT, uh, Humphrey visual field, of course, the uh, acuity. And those had to be positive that determine intracranial hypertension. Then the second, uh, the objective element is LP. We standardly do, we do every single patient go um, LP by ourselves that uh, I'm sure Dr. Benji will appreciate that. That is that under fluoroscopy, biplane, um, patients with mild sedation and with the uh, in the decubital position instead of in the prone position, which is most neuroradiology would do the diagnostic element. 
And then once you access needle, we straight up a leg passively, patient without movement, we would do all this and then measure pressure and measure pressure only without drain any fluid. Measure pressure, the procedure is done, that was it. Often, obviously these patients often come with MRV. Uh, MRV will give us the first screening, doesn't give us the final answer. It give us, if MRV feels perfect venous sinus, typically they are perfect. But in terms of a, there is a signal loss suggests the notion that might not be true, that all this together will bring us to the final objective evaluation that is the cerebral angiogram. Anatomically, we want to confirm there is evidence of venous sinus stenosis. And from there on, as uh, with study also to make sure, angiography study also need to make sure there is no dual AV fistula present. Often that will resolve intracranial hypertension. And that's typical uh, algorithm. From there on, we will determine patient will need for venous sinus pressure measurement, uh, for us, we want these patients go through one procedure without additional um, venous access. So we typically schedule these patients with the um, uh, during hyperlate uh, uh, planning six, seven days later and check PRU, then proceed for venous sinus pressure measurement and the possible venous sinus stenting. That's what we typically do. And these will be done in the general anesthesia. And that's the entire algorithm uh, from subjective presentation and then uh, complete all the objective evaluation and confirm the visual problem just by visual, uh, just by symptom headache does not give us any um, uh, venous uh, uh, treatment determination on that. Um, the second part of the answer to your question is the weight loss. Um, I never discuss any weight loss at the beginning of uh, management, I don't. The two things to me is critical. Number one, um, as you guys know, that any visual symptom presentation of edema, it will unlikely to benefit from long-term the weight loss. This is not gonna help and typically will continue to deteriorate rapidly. So that long-term weight loss is not gonna help. Secondly, I believe that it is likely you're going to break down physician-patient relationship immediately. As we have done for the last 50, 60 years in terms of managing intracranial hypertension, as many neurosurgeons, including myself, encounter that those patients, uh, we have little success in terms of giving patient uh, weight loss uh, to the point. As long as still have a pain, have a problem, it's not going to go anywhere. However, it's been my routine they will have an entire section of conversation with me at a six weeks follow-up after the treatment, successful treatment. So at a six week visit, I will go through a length of discussion weight loss and then we'll refer them to visit one of our uh, partner who uh, uh, the bariatric surgeon, as well as uh, his group of uh, uh, dietitian, consultant, trainer, everything. So that the time, and I found that's extremely successful um, and that's how our algorithm goes. Um, in terms of um, um, other, uh, um, you know, penetration, those I didn't think that's uh, been very successful. Um, often, have been data suggests that uh, the optic nerve sheets penetration 
uh, nowadays from neuroophthalmology field suggests there is a potential crescendo uh, deterioration after finishation, particularly in the very rapid deterioration patients. Mm -hmm. So it's really not very helpful. And uh, have been shy away from that. Um, and in terms of a traditional VP shunt, uh, I have to say uh, over the time, uh, over the last seven, eight years, I have not done single VP shunt on the patients that refer to me for this. It's ionic, um, perhaps something to do with I drop the venous pressure gradient level. Interesting. Yeah. So our, 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 there are some differences and there are many similarities between our algorithm and yours. And that's what makes medicine, you know, uh, beautiful, I think. Uh, so like for us, you know, we only do venous, every single potential IIH patient gets seen by neurology and neuro-ophthalmology. We always do a trial of medical therapy and weight loss with acetazolamide or topiramate. Um, if patients do not succeed or fail medical therapy and weight loss, then they get referred for uh, interventional treatment. Um, our ophthalmologists who also do the optic nerve sheath fenestrations prefer not to do optic nerve sheath fenestrations and they're basically have rarely if ever done um, at Mayo. Uh, shunting, uh, we have not done any shunting since we started doing venous sinus stenting. So now if they do meet the criteria, they fail medical therapy, they meet the, you know, modified dandy, dandy criteria or, you know, some of the more recent criteria that was uh, proposed um, in uh, the Journal of Neurology, uh, then, and they fail medical therapy, then we proceed with, um, you know, evaluating mm -hmm. candidacy for venous sinus stenting. Um, basically, you know, every IIH patient is going to have narrowing of the venous sinuses on MRV. It's just, yeah, I've never seen a normal MRV in a patient that really has IIH with papilledema. We uh, don't do an angiogram. We go directly to venography under conscious sedation with pressure measurements. And if we do see a gradient, we immediately proceed with stenting. So we basically do one procedure, a venographic uh, study with a stent. Um, and then we typically, you know, have the dose of acetazolamide thereafter, do a follow-up visit at, uh, at six weeks. Um, you know, one thing regarding the weight loss, uh, I... Uh, you know, ever since there was a, a trial that was recently published in JAMA Neurology, uh, looking at uh, the efficacy of bariatric surgery uh, versus uh, community weight management intervention for idiopathic adrenal hypertension. And it's, it's clear from that study that rapid weight loss significantly improves the, the, the opening pressures. Uh, and, you know, and you know, by way of that, you know, we do see improvements with headaches, we see improvements with, um, in, in, in papilledema as well. So in one sense, you know, I do feel like weight loss is the silver bullet for IIH. Uh, so if somebody has like grade one or two papilledema, we will try weight loss before referring to stenting, but if it's vision threatening grade three, four, five, then we proceed you know, with intervention, you know, as quickly as possible, because then you're getting to that vision threatening level. But no matter what, after stenting or before stenting, I always make sure to refer the patients at least to uh, a dietitian or somebody that can help them get on the road to weight loss, because the patients that I see 
that come back for a repeat stenting or where stenting is not um, successful have been the uh, super obese BMI greater than 50, uh, you know, and, you know, they, they need to get on that weight loss if they're, if you're really going to have meaningful, you know, improvement and everything. So that's kind of my um, algorithm and, and my thoughts regarding, regarding weight loss. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. The follow-up patient recurrence uh, very much uh, uh, related to the sustained the, the high BMI or continue to um, gain weight. And those scenarios uh, ha happens, I'm sure, share the same thing. Uh, one thing to add on is if all uh, scenario, if a patient have all the symptoms uh, that the neuropathology exams confirm and those scenario, if MRV suggests patient stenosis, we proceed everything as one procedure as well. That's a typical what we do. That's the reason end up with doing um, all this under general anesthesia in once for most of the cases under general anesthesia one setting. So you know. Yeah. You know, one thing that, uh, you know, because I'm just thinking about my experience, you know, I, I, I'm thinking about when have I seen patients with some papilledema and like no gradient. Um, and you know, one thing that I have noticed is that a lot of times the patients had a large volume LP, like within like two weeks of the, of the procedure. So I, I guess have been making exceptions. You know, I will stent without a large gradient if they clearly had IIH papilledema and maybe recently they had a large volume LP that could potentially make the gradient, you know, disappear. But I was wondering, did you like look at that? Was there any relationship between timing of LP and the gradient? So uh, the the interesting part is that we have been we make try every effort not to drain CSF. Okay. Lumbar puncture is always open pressure only, um, and uh, so that's one part. Uh, a second part, since we have a large group patient had an angiogram done. Before, so when we look anatomically, they really didn't see much of changes. But I, as, but I agree with it, it, the stenosis dynamic, and uh, that is one big deal. It could influence, particularly in those patients, pure um, the venous sinus stricture, meaning from the narrowing, from most likely related compression. Those could result potentially could be a problems. Now yeah. that's one we never do. The at least after lumbar puncture, we don't do any procedure until at least a week because it takes seven days to plan for pop, um, during antiplatelets anyway. Yeah. And, and I think one thing that Dr. Chen had pointed out, I think it's important for the general neurosurgical community, as well as like, you know, trainees who are listening, that the stenosis of the, of the vein, it's not due to like some clotting or anything like that. It is extrinsic compression of the sinus from the brain due to I don't know, some interstitial fluid retention. We, we don't really know. Um, and and uh, there is clear like MRI evidence. If you look at a coronal T1 image, you can actually see how like the temporal occipital, uh, you know, lobes are actually pushing into that transverse sigmoid sinus groove and causing the, the compression. So that's just something that um, it, and that's why it's so dynamic um, because it's not nothing wrong with the vein itself. It's, it's the brain that's doing the pushing. So, but um, do you guys have any questions? Um, yeah, that's probably how they uh, get uh, encephalocele's and, and spontaneous Exactly. I, I had a, a few questions and yep. we were talking about, yep. you know, different practice patterns and, and particularly uh, 
I was interested in, uh, you know, different ways in which these gradients are being measured. It seems there's not really a big consensus in the literature. And, um, you know, I, I've always been taught to, to measure them with the patient awake and um, at as much normal physiology as possible. And I was surprised to see um, that you performed all your measurements um, under general anesthesia. And there's some literature saying to suggest that, you know, the, the general anesthesia lowers the gradients. So I was, yeah. I was wondering. Uh, I, I think you're not the only one. Uh, you're not the only one. We, we went through this entire peer review process doing that. That's one of the biggest uh, um, uh, critique to ask on that. There's several things about this. Um, so um, before I go anywhere, is the one thing good about this is because all under the same math measure. So the entire concept we're based on is that the pressure in the venous sinus could change by changing the position of the patient, changing the, the, uh, uh, the anesthetics in terms of general anesthesia, ven ventilation, blood pressure, that's known problems. Um, but the question coming down to what happened in the target area, meaning the target stenotic portion, which is typically, I would say 98 to 99% occur at the transverse uh, and sigmoid sinus junction. Now, uh, very interestingly, um, just about a week ago, there's an article just published, very well-written published uh, paper by Dr. Kyle Fargan, who's published on Journal of uh, Neurointerventional Surgery. You guys should check it out. It's very well done. Um, did an entire assessment of 100 through 174 cases. Uh, this case is from uh, Winston-Salem. And uh, to measure the pressure, if you assign the pressure, before, uh, without, uh, under conscious sedation, and then measure the pre-stenting and the post-stenting venous sinus pressure again under general anesthesia to compare what the difference is. It almost directly answered the question you raised. Um, so the changes uh, were significant in the sagittal, superior sagittal sinus uh, without general anesthesia versus general anesthesia before stenting. Sagittal sinus drop about two, millimeter, 2.6 millimeter mercury after general anesthesia. And that is, that's important. However, there is a one critical point is that at the transverse sinus, the sigmoid sinus junction, which is vast majority of these cases being performed, that the stenosis plus the knotted portion of the venous sinus gradient has been consistent. If you maintaining the entitled CO2 uh, in, the, in, in the normal copic state, as well as, as if MAP in terms of uh, uh, the mean arterial pressure uh, less than 20 millimercury swing from the baseline. This is exactly what we did. In fact, our um, entitled, see, we've been very crucial about this, communicate with neuroanesthesia, that throughout the time, these patients, we maintain these patients at the baseline blood pressure systolic. We don't really even look into at the beginning, we started doing that. We didn't even pay attention on the map. We pay attention to systolic being exactly the same, maintaining that. At the same time, entitled CO2, we maintain between 37 to 40 millimeter mercury. That is what we stand in. And uh, um, so when they, in their paper, they, they suggest everything changed except if you maintain on that, the gradient will be the same before after measurement. That's, a, that's what we thought. 
Um, we see sometimes even swing entire pressure. I'm sure Doc uh, um, uh, and um, uh, you guys have done those before would notice that uh, some even before uh, and after stenting might seeing the difference is the entire pressure pressure, but the gradient always been consistent. That's what based on. Yeah, you know, in all honesty, like, like I mean, I do all my stuff uh, uh, awake. You know, I, I, I've, I never put people to sleep. Um, but like, you know, in the end, uh, if you have a, a consistent protocol and, and, and how you manage the patients and you know in your practice, you know, what gradients are, are meaningful and what are not and you're getting, uh, collecting data on outcomes, you know, well, now in this case, no matter what the gradient is, you're going to have improvement papilledema. Uh, then it, it doesn't, I guess it doesn't matter uh, how, how you do things. I mean, there's variations in practice patterns. And as long as we're, you know, uh, honestly auditing ourselves and knowing that we're doing the right thing uh, and getting the good outcomes, that, that's the only thing that, that, that matters. So I try not to be dogmatic ab about things. You know, um, I like conscious sedation because it's easier workflow, uh, but I don't like it because, you know, deploying the stent is painful for the patient, uh, but they are on propofol sedation. Uh, but then they're also on propofol sedation and they start snoring. And if they're super obese, they start desatting and then everybody, you know, freaks out. I mean, like there's pluses and minuses to, to everything. So, yeah. I agree. I think the most important part of this, I think that it is crucial. You can't just do the procedure with stenting only based on the gradient. Yeah. In, in the end, the most important part, you must have objective element. That is, cannot be just headache uh, and the complaint, some visual disturbance. I think that part uh, can be very misleading. Um, it is important, must have a, the objective element. And then, um, then the pressure gradient along with stenosis, that make sense to stand that I think is that I need to emphasize on that you can't just consider just pressure gradient have a two or three they're going to stand that can open entire ugly Pandora box that is um, a very good point well this was a wonderful discussion I really learned a lot and um, honestly you guys were great um, guest speakers because you were very passionate about the topic Hayden would you like to give our final wrap-up here at the end of the discussion yeah, and um, I just want to uh, thank all the panelists, um, Dr. Chen, Dr. Brinjichi, Dr. Huang. Uh, this was really a, a great discussion and um, certainly a lot of things uh, to consider and clearly a lot of uh, aspects of this treatment that still uh, remain under investigation. So, um, Again, uh, thank you all for your time. And this concludes the November CNS Journal Club podcast. Great. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Gigi Hoffman and Huang. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you. Take care. Cheers. Thank you.